Thank you, Abby. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here with us on this Sunday morning. My name is Pastor Ray Cosley. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Way, and we're just glad that you're here. Whether you're visiting or whether you've been a long-time congregant or member, we pray that you would indeed meet and encounter the living Christ. Well, if we can continue praying for Pastor James, Jake, Danielle, their whole Mexico missions team, uh, they hit the ground, they're doing well, and so God is so far so good. So we can just continue to pray for them. Um, And then uh, before I get into another announcement, as we do customarily, I'm going to have us say our values together as a church. So if you guys could please stand as we recite our values. I'll say the value, and then we will read the statement in one voice. A gospel-centered life. Gospel is the basis of our intimacy with God and our power for true transformation. Gospel-revealing community. By our love that transcends all natural bonds, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. Unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise, for all other ground is sinking sand. Church as family. We as followers of Jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment, interdependence, and affection. And lastly, a missional community. We join God's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world. You may be seated. Well, we have a special individual here with us that's going to be with us consistently, constantly, no longer a visitor, but a part of the church family. We have our new worship director, creative arts director, Andrew Schmidt. If you could please stand up, Andrew. Let's give this brother a hand clap. So yes, yes, yes. So let's just make this brother feel welcome. God has just done tremendous things in his journey here. He's done tremendous things in our side of the journey. And so to see how God's just brought these things together is just a wonderful testimony of his faithfulness, his faithfulness to us, his faithfulness to Andrew, and his faithfulness to his church. With that, if you could go with me before the Lord in prayer. Yes, God, you are worthy. God, the angels, they declare that you are worthy. The picture in Revelation is one where we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. God, let the worth of what the heavens declare Fill us, Lord God, with the same value of your worth. God, I pray that you help us to be present with you because, God, you are here. And so I pray against any distractions of the flesh, of Satan, or the world. We just command you to remove your presence in Jesus' name. And God, I ask that you would guard our minds and our hearts right now in Christ Jesus. And that we would counter, Lord God, the wonder of your love. Such, Lord God, that we can declare and shout, worthy are you. So God, please be with me in the proclamation of your word. I stand before you, a weak and broken vessel, saved by grace alone. And so let that same grace, Lord God, extend to me and to us, I pray. 
In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. I want to ask you today, what are the sins? The sins in your life that get you down. I'm talking about the ones that nag. The ones that won't go away. Those sinful tendencies in your mind and your heart that keep you up at night. The ones that hurt the people around you that you love. That sin that you traffic in, that at times you find yourself there so often that you wonder at times, am I even saved? The ones that make you feel like you're just not doing enough or that you aren't doing enough to garner God's love. That, that you've fallen so far or, or so short or so continuously that his favor just isn't upon you. I'm talking about those sins. And I should be talking to every single person in this room because every single one of us walked in here with them. The ones that we traffic in that make us feel like we have that disapproving gaze from God. I'm talking about those struggles. And in some way, shape, or form, every single one of us deal with guilt. Or am I the only one in the room? Because we find ourselves in these areas that we know fall short. I want to say something about guilt. All guilt is not bad guilt. I know perhaps we've heard in the church or we've heard over the time of our lives or even from our parents when we did something wrong that guilt is from the devil. It can be. And I know sometimes we've been told that Jesus paid it all, and so don't let the guilt fall. And I know that for a generation of us who are raised on a steady stream of self-esteem, the ultimate evil is to think bad of yourself. But I like what Comer has to say about guilt. He says, guilt is to the soul with pain is to the body. It's a kind of moral discomfort. Pain is bad only when it is indefinite. But in the short term, it is a gift from God to our bodies. It is a messenger that that tells us that something isn't right and it needs to be fixed quickly. So for those of you who have yet to know the saving love of Jesus Christ today, guilt for you is actually your greatest friend. Because what guilt is designed to do in you is to point you to the fact that indeed you are guilty of sin and that God in his grace has sent Jesus Christ and opened up his loving arms that you might not be under the wrath of a holy God. And for those of you who have to come to know Jesus, you know him as your Lord, your Savior, and your treasure, guilt also can be and is a good thing. Because see, for us who are believers in Christ, guilt is a tutor. It's a tutor designed to lead us back to him and his life-giving ways. It keeps us from moving and walking astray. See, in that way, guilt is good because sin is a big deal and we know it, which is why we feel guilty. 
You see, whenever we sin, we tear the, the very moral fabric of the world around us. We tear the very moral fabric of the individuals around us. We, we destroy the people that we love as a result of our own sin. And we break the heart and defend the righteousness of a holy and a loving God. I mean, we do know that the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is what? Death. It is on the account of sin that, that the very heavens are shocked and appalled, it says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. It is on the account of the sin that we are guilty of that the scriptures tell us that the wrath of God is coming. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Now, I know I'm coming a little heavy at the beginning of this message. You're feeling the weight. That's intentional. Because see, what I have to preach to you from God's word won't land in gospel-freeing power that will at the end make you shout until you understand and feel the gravity of your guilt. You see, if you don't understand how guilty you are, then you will find yourself just hearing some of the truths that you've heard if you've been around the church that I'm going to preach that you've heard them time and time again. So I'm asking you right now, feel a little guilt. I know you didn't come to church to feel guilty. But just a little bit. And yet for those today who have come to know the saving grace of Christ, there is a guilt that can have a place in your life that God did not intend. There is a guilt that God in Jesus did not call for you to bear. And so many of us find ourselves in that form of guilt as believers in Christ. And so my question for us is this, what is the sinister side of guilt for those who love Jesus? And how can you experience freedom from it? We find ourselves once again in the book of Romans, Romans chapter eight. If you have your Bibles, please, Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We begin at verse 31. The last time I preached on verses 35 through 39, and now I will preach through 31 through 34, primarily in 33 and 34. But in verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That rhetorical question right there by Paul is basically the overarching theme for verses 31 through verse 39. Is God for me or is God against me? And as I told you, the very verses 32 through 34 are about sin, and verses 35 to 39 are about suffering. And when these two combine in our lives, we can ask this same question, God, are you against me? Are you against me in light of all of the suffering that's coming my way? And here Paul is asking, is God against you in the midst of your sin? And then he says in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge? So now we find ourselves, if you can picture it with me, if you've ever been in a courtroom, I know Nick, you're quite familiar He's a lawyer. He's not a criminal. He's, 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 he's a lawyer. <laughs> I threw our Nick under the bus there. Well, we find ourselves right now in the courtroom of heaven. And in this context, judge is the God. God is the judge. 
And I want you to picture yourself, if you will, in front of the judge of all the earth, in the courtroom of heaven. And the person on the stand in this text is a Christian, is believers, is those who have come to know the saving love of Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, then I want you to picture yourself in front of God, the judge of all the earth. And I want you to bring in front of that judge all of your sin. And I want you to feel the weight and the guilt of it as you stand in front of this judge this God. And it is from this place that you can see the sinister side of guilt and how you can experience freedom from it. So let's see the sinister side of guilt. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Everybody say charge. Everybody say condemn. The two questions at the very beginning of verse 31 and the very beginning of verse 34 are essentially the same. And he identifies who the the sinister side of guilt is at the beginning of verse 34. Who is to condemn? The sinister side of guilt for those who have embraced the saving work of Jesus Christ is the guilt of condemnation. Listen. Guilt is only good in that it is designed to lead us into repentance. Guilt is only good in that it is designed to lead us back to his ways, to lead us back into his love, to mature us more into the image of Christ. That is the good side of guilt. But guilt for the Christian was never designed to linger. Guilt was never designed to be the hum in the background of your life that is constantly reminding you that you just don't measure up. Guilt was never designed to make you feel constantly that you're, you're just not enough. Guilt was never designed for the believer in Christ to make you feel that you've lost or you don't deserve God's favor. And some of us, if we're honest, find ourselves in certain areas of our sinful lives in those places. But notice both verses 33 and 34 both begin with the who question. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against? Verse 34, who is to condemn? I want to ask you a question. Who is the drumbeat of condemnation in your life? You see, one repeating drumbeat of condemnation in the believer's life goes by the name of Satan. You see, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, The text says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Day and night before God. Who's the one that he's talking about that was thrown down? Satan. There's a very interesting illustration in the Old Testament that is just so powerful. The prophet Zechariah once saw a vision. He saw a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, uh, many scholars believe that that is a pre-incarnate representation of Jesus Christ when you see the angel of the Lord. And so what you have here is Joshua the high priest standing before the very presence of God. And the text says in Zechariah chapter 3 that Satan is standing at Joshua's right hand. 
and it says that he is at his right hand to accuse him. You see, as long as we are in the world, as long as we are in this world, we may feel just like the prophet Joshua, just like the priest Joshua, that the devil is always at our right hand, always parading before us and God all of our filth. You see, the very name Satan, you know what it means? It means accuser. You see, this is what Satan knows. Satan already knows that he is, verse 34, that he is condemned. So you know what he does day and night in the life of the believer? He does day and night as he labors to surround himself by the condemned. See, those of us outside of Jesus, the reality is that we are condemned. And so with Satan, you know what he wants to do to those of you who don't know Jesus today? He wants to keep you blind from the reality that you are guilty and under his condemnation. He doesn't want you to see that you are just as condemned as he is. Because the moment you see and feel the weight of your guilt and the weight of your condemnation before a holy God, you're going to look up and say, God, please save my soul. But see, also you know what he does in the believer's life. He doesn't want you to see the wonder of the beauty of what Jesus has done for you so much so that you feel condemned. So he labors day and night. And you know what he's after? Your spiritual peace. He doesn't want you to be at peace. He wants you to be at constant unrest. And no matter how much you hate your sin, no matter how much you find in you that deep longing that that longs to please God, The devil wants you to believe that, you know what, there's nothing that you can do to find God's favor because of who you are and what you've done. You see, he will meet you at that midnight time, that midnight time and and, and remind you of the fact that God really does disapprove of all that you've done. You know, Satan's the one who will whisper alongside you, you know all those promises that you read in the Bible? You know, all things work together for good, or he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you. Ah, I think you need to doubt that, homie. If you really knew what you did and you really took the weight of that, ah. See, Scott Hubbard points this out. The devil's accusations would be easier to dismiss if they, weren't, if they were manifestly false. See, one of the reasons why we struggle with sin as Christians and guilt is the trouble is that his accusations that whisper in our minds and hearts that he tells God, those accusations are actually in so many ways true because we are sinful, because we are guilty, because outside of Jesus we do deserve condemnation. We will never find peace then by arguing for our innocence by trying to make ourselves feel better about the fact that, oh, it wasn't that bad. No, this bad is that bad. Is that bad. Is eternally bad. Who is the drum of condemnation in your life? Is it Satan? Who is the one who condemns? Well, also some of us deal with another who, and it's not just Satan, it's ourselves. I was speaking to a woman not too long ago. She loved Jesus. Embraced his ways. She just wasn't measuring up in her life of Christ. She found herself sinning in these certain areas that that just caused for her to feel guilt. 
And even though she had stepped into repentance, even though she had asked the Lord for forgiveness, she just said, I don't know right now if I were to die, would I have the well done of God? Because see, she was wallowing in self-condemnation. You see, we all kind of have those moments or those seasons, do we not? Some of us have our own self-expectations. Sometimes we put standards on our lives of how we ought to live and do things that God didn't even put there, but we think that God wants us to do so that they'll be pleasing in his sight. Right? Do you have those expectations of what it looks like for you to be a good son, a good daughter, a good mother? That, that if I don't measure up in this way as a father, then I'm just wallowing in guilt. And so there's an expectation and a standard that I've created that, that I cannot reach, I have not reached, and so I feel guilty. The type of husband I ought to be, wife, the kind of friend that I should be, employer, employee. That in some way that if you reach this self-expectation, this self-created standard, then, then God will smile on me. If I can just be like this, if I can just get this far. But the, the drumbeat of condemnation continues to beat. And then there's a the self-loathing as you wallow in your guilt. I don't know if you've been there. Maybe you're there right now, but I can guarantee this. There will be a day in your life, and really there probably should be more that you feel the weight and gravity of your sins so much that you ask the questions, how can God be for me after all that I've done? How can God love me because of how short I fall? How can I have the well done if I don't do well? I've told this story before, but I remember when I was in seminary, and I had fallen into sin, grave sin. And I remember believing at that time in my life, I had felt God had called me to what I'm doing right now. And I remember thinking, I'm disqualified. What I've done, God can't use me anymore. I've gone too far. I've messed up too bad. I've ruined what God has called me to. And I remember sitting in front of my seminary professor, Dr. Clint Arnold, and I confessed what I had done with deep repentance. And I told him, I said, I'm in seminary. And I wasn't laughing at the time, but it's like, dude, I, I spent like umpteen thousand dollars right now, and now it's all going down the tubes. And I remember him looking at me. He says, Ray, God is a God of redemption, love, and forgiveness. And I want you to always remember moving forward. Oh, he's going to use you. And whenever you feel that weight of guilt that feels like you just can't measure up to the favor of God, remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he's going to try to dog you all the time. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You see, I'm talking about those of you that when the verse 35, you remember we talked about the verse 35? When the famine, when the trials, when the tribulations. You see, a lot of times what happens is, 
And we do this. Sometimes when the tribulation and the suffering comes, and it comes in waves, what is the one thing that a lot of times we go to? What did I do to deserve this? Or is that just me? Where have I fallen short that God is bringing this into my life? Or what past sins have I committed that now finally God is like, yeah, I'm whooping your butt now. You see, I'm talking about those things. That self-condemnation. I want to ask you, who is the drum in your life? Who is that drum of condemnation? Is it Satan? Is it yourself? Or perhaps for some of you, it's others. Right? You know the fault finders in your life? You got any of those? The people that always kind of can find out where you're falling short and, and make sure that you understand and know it? All right, I'm talking to some of you husbands and wives. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting, yeah, uh-huh. Stung, stinging some of y'all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, it's all good. Jesus loves you. Yeah. I'm talking about those friendships, right? Yeah, the brothers and sisters that be like, yeah, I, you know, I just, I'm trying to build you up. So I just need to tell you about yourself. You got, any of them, you got any of them tell you about yourself, folks, in your life? The mom and dad? Yeah, uncanny way. Hey, I'm, I'm good, though. Don't, don't, yeah, yeah, I don't do that. Okay, all right, all right, all right. The fault finders. Who's the drum of condemnation in your life? Satan, self, others. And then sometimes, you know what? Sometimes one of the loudest drums of fault finders for us is God. Sometimes you just feel like he's never pleased. Sometimes you just feel like you'll never gain and get his smile. You see, guilt is not biblical guilt for Christians when it plays the role of condemner in your life. So now here's the question. As a Christian, how can you experience freedom from the condemnation of your guilt? And as I said earlier, What I'm about to share with you is something that every single one of you are going to need if you don't need it right now. Because every single person in the sound of my voice are going to experience condemnation. There's going to be something that you do that the weight of guilt is going to be so heavy that it could sink you. And if you don't have these gospel truths that I'm about to share, it can indeed do just that. So you may not be there right now, but you might be there tomorrow. The lies, the bitterness, the manipulation, the anger, the discontent, the envy. What are those sins that you find yourself dealing with guilt? And so now let's see how we can experience freedom from the condemnation of guilt. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Everybody say elect. Another way to translate that is chosen. I want everybody to say out loud, I am God's chosen. What does it mean to be God's chosen? See, this brings us back to chapter 8, if you go up a few verses, to verses 29 through 30, where the same Greek word is used there. And in verse 29, Paul says this, For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's beautiful and glorious. See, the way you experience freedom, Paul is saying first is remember that you're chosen. And Paul breaks it down in verse 21 by saying, you were foreknown, foreknown, excuse me. You know what that word means, to be foreknown? It doesn't mean that God had knowledge beforehand. No, 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 that's not what that means. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used there is the same word that's used when it says, and Adam knew his wife Eve. That's sexual intimacy. That word foreknow there is a word that means favor. That word to be chosen by God means to be the one that is the elect above the others. And then he says that kind of intimate, almost marital type of, type of knowing, the knowing of you, that is you are predestined. Now here predestined does not refer here to the choice of who will and won't be saved. I know we get into these arguments. That's not even what Paul is emphasizing here. What is the root word of the word predestined? Destiny. It refers to the destiny of the one who is foreknown, the one who has been appointed, the one who has been chosen, the one whose affections have been set upon. That individual right there has a destiny. So first God foreknows you that he has unconditionally set his favor on you, but then in setting his favor on you, he destines you for a glorious eternity. And what is that destiny? It says in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. So in other words, that is your destiny because you are foreknown, namely that God married you to himself. Therefore, he has destined you to conformity. In other words, when it comes to your sins, your destiny is not condemnation, but conformity. That's your destiny. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did last month. I don't care what you did 10 years ago. I don't care what you're doing right now. Your destiny in Jesus is conformity to his son. See, Satan wants you to think your destiny is condemnation. You see, the self wants you to think that your destiny is you're just not going to measure up. Others around you want you to say that your destiny is, but in Jesus, it's conformity. Right now, regardless of the sins that you've done, whether you lied to mom and dad, whether you manipulated or hide, whatever you did, right now, even now, you are moving from one measure of glory to another, 2 Corinthians. Because you've been foreknown. Because that's your destiny. So that means, guess what? His favor is on you. I want you to say it. Say, it's on me in Jesus. Say, his favor is on me in Jesus. Now this favor 
has, verse 30, given you a calling. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This favor that you see in verse 29 moves into a calling in verse 30. 30, And what is the calling in your life? What is the calling over your life? What is the calling that God has over your life? Is his calling condemnation? No, it's crazy because he goes predestined, justified. He skips sanctification. Oh, y'all didn't see that. Y'all didn't see that. I mean, I thought he, he would say justified, sanctified, glorified. But Paul said justified, glory. justified glory. That's God's call over your life. God's call is the only call that holds weight in the universe. God is the only one who says, let there be, and it is. Not Satan, not self, and not others. So how can you experience freedom from the condemnation of guilt? The first thing that Paul helps us see is that we have to declare and rest in the fact that we are his chosen. But Paul's not done. There's more. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul now here in verse 34 says, if you want to experience freedom from guilt of of condemnation, not only do you declare and rest the fact that you are chosen, but look at the gospel. First, he says, look at his death. He says there in verse 34, he died. So in other words, he's saying, let the death of Christ remind you of the fact that God didn't overlook your guilt. Remember, sin is serious. God is holy. But instead of laying the guilt that you deserve and the sin that should be laid on your back, instead he laid it on his son. Let the gravity of verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That means he handed over his son. So when the guilt brings despair, what Paul is saying is you got to see the nine inch nails in his hands. You see, when the guilt is so heavy that you think that there's no way that I can be forgiven, you got to hear the crack of the whip on his back. You gotta, you gotta see the pure, undefiled Son of God being beaten and stripped. When the weight of your sin feels too heavy to bear, I need you to picture the Son of Man carrying the burden of the cross on his back. You see, the drumbeat of your failures, it rings loud. But listen, the song, it is finished, rings louder. And what Paul is saying is, you gotta look at the death. You got to look at all of the ways that the weight and the gravity of your sin led the very God of all gods, King of all kings, the Holy One of Israel, to bring his own son to be whipped, beaten, and scourged. 
You see, you got to feel the weight of that. You got to see the seriousness of it. Yes, our, our sin is weighty. It's so weighty that it required the very death of the Son of the living God. Listen to what I'm saying. God didn't subject his very son to a death that was torturous so you can walk around in the same guilty condition that you were before you met Jesus. God didn't go through all of that for you to walk away feeling the same measure of guilt that you deserve outside of him when you are in him. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He was it white as snow. Just pay it all. To him I owe. The sin had left the crimson stain. Jesus, what? Come on now. He paid it all. All to him I owe. But Paul doesn't stop there in verse 34 at his death. He tells you to then look in verse 34 at his resurrection. Not only did he die more than that who was raised. In other words, look at the three days. And after three days, he rolled away the stone. When you're feeling the condemnation... When you're feeling the guilt, when you, when you feel like you don't have God's favor, he says, look at the death. But not only that, look at the, fi- the fact that the death just couldn't keep him down. That, that the grave just couldn't hold him. That the very power of the Son of God, the Holy Spirit of God, raised Jesus, the text says, from the grave. And when you doubt the truth of the simple fact that his resurrection doesn't give you justification before a holy God, go back to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. You can read it this week. Who was delivered for our trespasses and he was raised, the text says, for our justification. Your justification hinges Romans 4, 25 on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did he raise? I'm asking somebody, did he raise up in here? Then you're justified. But if that's still not enough for you to feel freedom from condemnation, Paul's not done yet. Verse 34. Who died more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God. So not only are you look at his death, not only are you look at his resurrection, you got to look at Jesus' position. At the right hand. You see, the right hand is a position of power and favor. It's a position of victory. It is to be a vice regent with the very God of all universe. And that's where Jesus stands right now. 
This is an image of Psalm 110, verse 1. So at the right hand, Jesus is demonstrating when he rose, he ascended. Oh, the ascension. We don't talk enough about the ascension. Oh, you see, if he doesn't get up there, then he doesn't demonstrate and have the authority that he can give us down here. That's why he said, I got to go. I got to, don't leave me here. I got to get in position. And I'm going to talk about this in a second. Position matters for the reality of your salvation. He's got to be at the right hand. At the right hand, authority. At the right hand, power. At the right hand, favor. When the guilt is too much for you to see the reality that his death and resurrection means all the world to you, just, just picture Jesus at the right hand of the judge of all the universe. And the question is, is what is Jesus doing at the right hand? That's what matters. What is Jesus doing at the right hand? Well, that's where Paul ends in verse 34, and he says, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. Everybody see interceding? For us. This actually is the denouement. This is the climax for verse 34. I mean, you think the climax would be the resurrection, right? Jesus died, rose, hallelujah. No, 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 no. The way the text reads and the way Paul intended it, he wants you to shout when you hear intercession. Anybody shout? How many of us have shouted with the reality that Jesus is interceding? We shout about the resurrection, amen? But Paul is saying, I want you to, I want you to shout at the intercession. What is Jesus doing right now at the right hand of God? He's praying for you. Can somebody shout? He's praying about what? Verse 34, who is to condemn? That's the theme of verse 34. So he's praying about what? All of the sins that are aimed at you that make you feel condemned all the time. He's praying about all the accusations from Satan, self, and others. And instead of these accusations, watch this, because they are true. The devil's not lying. You are jacked up. When he's standing before the throne of God saying, hey, so-and-so did this, this, and this, and this, and this. Is he lying? But instead of those accusations moving God to act against us, he ignores them because Jesus is at the right hand praying for you in that moment. Therefore, you are resting in his justification because he's praying. Now, what's crazy about the text is that interceding is in the present tense in the Greek. You know what that means? That means Jesus never stops. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he always lives. Everybody say always lives to make intercession for them. 
Uttermost there, it means completely and always. So basically, even when you can't feel like Jesus is working for the sake of your justification to remove you from your condemnation, he's always working. He not only has completed it, but he's constantly always doing. Even when you don't feel it, he's working. Even when you don't see it, he's working. He never stops. He never stops. Come on. He never stops. He's constantly praying. And it says in the text, at the end, he always lives. Everybody say, always lives. In other words, he would not be able to save us completely to the uttermost and always if he did not always go on interceding for you forever. Are you following me? This is why Paul ends there. Because you realize Jesus will always and forever be interceding for you for all eternity. That is the only way that you can stand in the presence of a holy God for all eternity and gain all of the joy and the glory and the good that a holy God can give. You see, sometimes we see our salvation as static. Christ did something once, he died rose, and that's all there is to it. That's not what Hebrews 7 is telling us. This very day, listen, you and I are being saved by the eternal intercession of Jesus in heaven. If Jesus stops praying for you, you will be under the condemnation of God in that moment. That's why Paul ends there. If Jesus does not get to the right hand and ascend to the Father, we have no hope. The authority that he gains from the resurrection gives him the ability once he ascends to stand at the right hand of the Father and be our great high priest. So what, so what Paul is saying is I want you to picture when you feel condemned, I want you to picture Jesus constantly standing at the right hand of God. And what did I say that the right hand signifies? That it signifies authority, power, and the place of favor. In other words, Jesus is standing in the place of favor so you can have the very favor of God in him. You guys remember the prophet Zechariah? Remember I talked about how he saw a vision. Joshua the high priest standing for the angel of the Lord. And it says that Joshua the high priest had who at his right hand? Satan. And he was parading all of the filth before God. <laughs> but like Joshua, the devil always stands at our right hand too. And he's parading your filth before the ears of God. At our right hand is Satan, self, and others. But who's at God's right hand? You know what matters most? What matters most is who's at God's right hand, knew who's not who's at yours. I know you get the whispers that you are condemned. I know you get the whispers of the accusations. 
But what we see in the text is that at our right hand is Satan, self, and others. But God's right hand is the sinless son of God interceding for us always, every time, and forever. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in. Why do you think Paul starts it out in chapter 8, verse 1? There is now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He ain't just saying stuff. He ain't just trying to make you feel better about yourself. The gravity and the reality of the sinless Son of God dying, raising, ascending, interceding gives him all the gumption that he can promise you. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. In Jesus, you are not condemned. Now you see why I told you I wanted you to feel the weight of your sin at the beginning of our message. Because see, the more we feel the weight and the gravity of the sin that we deserve punishment and judgment for, when somebody tells us the good news of a God in Christ Jesus that died, rose, ascended, and interceded for the sake of us who we know far, far from it we deserve it, we will shout. So how can you experience freedom from the condemnation of your guilt? Look. Whenever you start feeling like God's favor is not on you, whenever you start feeling like God is frowning upon you, just remember, you are his chosen. And y'all know I love Ephesians. I've been talking about it. I've been saying it all. I've been, it, oh, it, no, it, it's stunning to me that Paul says before the foundation of the world were laid, even as he chose us in him, before the foundations of the world were laid to be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundations of the world. He chose you. When you were an orphan. He adopted you. He made you his own. God is not going to choose something that he just wants to frown upon that he's never pleaded with. The smile of God belongs to us in Jesus. And the reality of the salvation that sees the wonder of that doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't run away, run into sin. The evidence of the fact that you see the reality of that good news makes you want to run from sin because you want to please a God who has loved you in a way that you did not deserve. And I love the illustration. I've used it so many times. But because we belong to God as his child, it's kind of like me as a dad. I chose my children. Everyone chose to have 
one. And they belong to me. And I love them. And so just by the fact that they belong to me, they have my approval. And they have my smiling gaze. Not perfectly. Sometimes I didn't do it. Maybe more often than I shouldn't have. But I love the picture of a dad who is a child. He says, go clean your room. And the kid goes up there and is rustling around. And this is a seven-year-old child. And then the kid yells down the stairs, Daddy, I'm done. We know what a seven-year-old cleanup looks like. But see, when that dad walks up those stairs, looks at that room. Could he nitpick at all the ways that she failed? All the ways that she didn't make the mark? Sure. But because that's my child, I just want to affirm, wow, I see how much you just wanted to please me. You were up here working really hard, weren't you? Yeah, daddy. I really tried. I love that. I love that you tried. Listen, now let me take you by the hand and just lovingly help you to just be better. But know that in that, I love you because of who you are. That's how God sees us in Jesus. And it's that kind of love that drives us to want to be more like him, not less like him. So as we prepare now for communion, I want you to bring your hearts before the Lord. What are those areas in your life that you can find yourself feeling guilty? And I'll say this, as I said at the beginning of my message, guilt does have a role in the life of the Christian. And if there's an area in your life right now where you've been feeling guilty, you know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit trying to lead you into repentance. Let it do its work. There may, there may be right now for some of you some repentance that you need to step into. There may, may need to be for some of you approaching someone and asking for forgiveness because you have sinned. You may need to go before the Lord and say, God, I have sinned in this way and I'm just confessing this sin. That's what guilt was designed to do, was lead us back to him and his ways. And maybe that's what this time can be for you. And there may be those of you who just need to allow for the love of God in Christ to pour over you. That you're constantly feeling dogged by Satan, yourself, and others. That you're just not enough. That you just don't measure up. That God doesn't love you yet. At least not in the way that you want him to. Because you just haven't reached the goal. Allow for the gospel to just pour over you right now. And as you meditate in this way, when you're ready, you can come forward and grab the elements and take them back to your seat. We'll take them together. And I want to say this. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, we would ask that you would take this time to observe. And let this be an opportunity for you 
to actually make Jesus Christ today your Lord, Savior, and your treasure. As these elements represent the very thing that we saw in verse 34 of chapter 8 in Romans, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession. So let's take some time now, and when you're ready, you can come down the aisle, grab the elements, and take them back to your seat.
I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink. Thank you that in Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is true. And God, I pray for each one of the individuals, Lord God, under the sound of my voice. For those, God, who do not know you, help them to feel such a profound weight of condemnation right now that, God, they look up. And they look to your death, burial, resurrection, ascension and intercession for the sake of their guilty souls. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, help them to step more deeply in these truths that belong to them in Jesus. There really is no more condemnation. So God, I pray, God, that you silence the voices God, that you silence Satan's condemning voice in their lives, that you silence, Lord God, the self-voice in their lives, that you silence, Lord God, the others in their lives that want to continue to dog them. And God, help them to step into the freedom that you died, rose, ascended, and interceded for. We pray this in Jesus' name.